Disquiet on the Western Front, 08. Sensing old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Sensing old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Sensing old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want more and more and more, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just, you know, right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. To speak to trees, first, you must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. This is Chad Swimmer, and welcome to Disquiet on the Western Front. I'm very excited for today's show, and only partly because I did not make it. I met Matilda Hernandez Miares and her partner, Bodie Harnish, two years ago at the base of Thermometry in Casper. They had both been commuting from their home near the Mendocino National Forest out to the coast to help us in the struggle to save Jackson. They are involved in a movement called Forest Reciprocity. You give to the forest, the forest gives to you. This seems to me the same philosophy practiced by Coyote, who you heard from on our last show. How do we give to the forest? What can we do to help the forests that we love flourish? You were introduced to Matilda two months ago on this show with some powerful and wise words about grief, struggle, and healing in the Redwoods. Matilda took the reins for today's show. Check it out. Thank you, Chad. I'm Matilda Hernandez-Mayares, member of the Force Reciprocity Group, 
Thank you all for listening. I had a lot of fun putting the show together and interviewing my fellow froggers. Here are some of the other voices you will hear in this episode. This is Govinda with Forest Reciprocity, EarthCycles.net, Indigenous Environmental Network, and Cloud Forest. And we've been doing uh, tree work since 1970. This is uh, Bodhi Harnish, um, born out in Potter Valley and uh, recently involved in the Forest Reciprocity Group, looking at uh, creative ways to utilize trees from our forest that need to be thinned due to fire danger and uh, creative ways to uh, adapt to climate change and uh, build community resilience. I'm Eric Lasotovich, part owner at Polecraft Solutions with the Round Pole Timber Framing business. And I'm Jen Bernstead with Cloud Forest Institute and the Forest Reciprocity Group. We're all about taking care of the forest and preventing fires and building good things with all the small diameter poles that need to come out of the forest. Thank you, Chad, for having us. The Forest Reciprocity Group is the focus of the Cloud Forest Institute, a local nonprofit based out of Boonville. start with a little bit about where the Cloud Forest Institute came from. 2022 was the 20th anniversary of Cloud Forest Institute uh, receiving our tax exempt status. In those days, it took longer and uh, it was a little harder to get your tax exempt status. We finally got it after five years of functioning already. My daughter is the mover and shaker, really, behind Cloud Forest Institute. She founded it while she was attending CSU Monterey Bay. Her name is Frida Alida, and she was the program manager and developed a whole lot of projects and programs down in Ecuador. Our family had the good fortune of being able to visit Ecuador as a group, as a family, and we fell in love with the Amazon. We fell in love with Ecuador and the Ecuadorian people, and the whole um, motive was to set up an educational exchange, bring Ecuadorian kids up here to see what it was like in Northern California, and bring Northern California students down to Ecuador. And we did do that. We created service learning projects and more North American students went down to Ecuador than Ecuadorian students came up here. But we created the first recycling program in this little town called Mindo. And uh, we always felt that was a great synchronicity that we were functioning from Mindo, Ecuador. And uh, here we are in Mendo, Sino County. And it's a cloud forest down here. Up here we have a subtropical cloud forest. There's, there's a lot to love about the forests in both Ecuador and in Northern California. We worked with a group called Fundacion Cambugan, who were creating a continuous wildlife corridor for puma and bespeckled bear and other animals to have corridor to migrate. So this Ecuadorian nonprofit called Fundacion Cambugan still functions down there, and they're amazing land stewards. There's a lot of scientific studies go on down in the Fundacion Cambugan. And maybe some of you have heard of the Amazon Micro Renewal Project. 
We're doing few years of experimentation down in Lago Agria where the oil spills, the Texan mobile oil spills happened and to see if mycelium could help in the um, final phase of oil spill cleanup. And since then, the Amazon Michael Renewal Project has become co-renewal. And check that out, co-renewal.org. Uh, they're continuing the work. 100,000 barrels gushing daily Mucking up whatever's in the way Well, gee, we're really very sorry But that's the corporate way But that's the corporate way But that's the corporate way well, speaking of forests and interesting similarities between Mindo, Ecuador and Mendocino, we were offering jail support to our friends down there who were in the trees protesting an oil pipeline that was going through a very seismically active volcanic area. And so this was before Julia Butterfly went down there. We were trying to stop an oil pipeline from becoming installed, and uh, unfortunately, it was installed anyway. But that's the corporate way. We haven't been to Ecuador in a few years, but last time Alita was down there was right after their earthquake. I think maybe in the coast of Ecuador there was a really bad earthquake, so they went and collaborated with a group down there and built temporary bamboo structures for people who are displaced and homeless. What about the forest reciprocity group? When did that work start? We produced a workshop that Govinda inspired in 2015, where we took, uh, oh, I guess it was seven or eight students up into the forest, and we thinned an area, a very small area. It was remarkable seeing how much light came in when just a few um, poles were taken down. Um, we brought these poles to uh, Mendo Dragon Intentional Community in Boonville, where um, in one weekend we peeled the poles and we um, erected a uh, pole frame. A garden area is what it is. It's, it was meant to be a greenhouse, but it was on the south side of the house, so it's much too hot to be a greenhouse there. So it's pretty much just a sitting area and a conversation piece. And we have planted some lemons and limes in that area. And uh, it's, it's a work in progress. So that was our first Forest Reciprocity Group workshop. And then uh, in 2018, we kept thinking, oh, Govinda's um, son was involved with these people who were working in Africa, right? And they were thinking that it would be good to have a business plan to build... Um, whole structures for the people of Africa, right? They were looking right? for housing they as were well. Looking for so, housing. And also the idea was to mitigate the impacts of uh, catastrophic fire up here and start uh, thinning out the forest and yeah. try to work out a program with that. And finding out that there's indigenous communities in all parts of North America that are uh, along the borders uh, that are looking for housing and Mm-hmm. So the idea would be to get uh, these products out yeah. to them. We, the fires were happening, and we knew why, because of 
the overgrowth of the small diameter poles, and then we realized what superior building material they are. So then we were telling everybody, if we would just take care of the forest, we'd have all this building material, and the forest could take care of us. Let's hear a little bit from round pole craftsman Eric Lasotovich about how he remembers frog starting. When did you become involved with Forest Reciprocity Group? At the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) We formed the Reciprocity Group because my wife met Jenny at a community asset mapping course they were taking together. And Jenny got excited about the idea of round pole timber framing because her friend Govinda had been doing similar work. And so she wanted to form this group of people that use forest settings to build buildings and use the forest settings for other projects like fencing or other, other forest products, maybe wood wool or biochar. Jenny sure is a mover and a shaker for us here at Frog. Here's a little bit more from her. Forest Reciprocity Group officially uh, formed in 2018. We got a, a seed grant from the Rose Foundation, and we used that year, 2019, for educational outreach, and we gave presentations to consolidated um, tribal councils and to groups that were, you know, this was right after the fire in 2017. And so there were lots of community groups that are putting their heads together to figure out how to be prepared for the next fire. And so we, with the help of Colin and Eric from Polecraft Solutions, gave two workshops, one in Laytonville and one in Ukiah. And people were just eating it up. The people want to learn how to build with poles. I'd like to take some time now to really root into what we mean when we use the word reciprocity. And to start the conversation, I'm going to play a little piece by Robin Wall Kimmer on the Honorable Harvest. If I could choose just a single element of the traditional teachings that we're called to pick up, it would be the teachings of the Honorable Harvest, which were taught us by the plants, who give us everything that we need. It's a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the living world, a very sophisticated ethical protocol. One of the first steps of the Honorable Harvest is to understand that the lives that we are taking are the lives of generous beings, of sovereign beings. And in order to accept their gift, we owe them at least our attention. To care for them, we must know what they need. And at the very minimum, we should know their names. And yet, the average American can name over a hundred corporate logos and ten plants. Is it a surprise that we have accepted a political system that grants personhood to corporations and no status at all for wild rice and redwoods? The protocols for the Honorable Harvest are not really written down, but if they were, it would look something like this. When you get to the woods, you don't just start grabbing everything in sight. We're taught never to take the first plant that you see, and that means you'll never take the last. This is a prescription with inherent conservation value. And then if we encounter another plant, we ask permission. I've always been taught to address that plant, to introduce myself, and tell it what it is that I have come for. If you're going to take a life, you have to be personally accountable for it. I know there are places where if you talk to a plant, they think you are crazy, but in our way, 
It's just good manners. If you're going to ask, you have to listen for the answer. You can listen in different ways, pragmatically, intuitively. Look around, see whether those plants have enough to share. And if the answer is no, you go home. For we remember that they don't belong to us. And taking without permission is also known as stealing. And the Honorable Harvest counsels that we also take in such a way that does the least harm and in a way that benefits the growth of the plant. Use everything that you take. It's disrespectful of the life that's given to waste it. The next tenet of the Honorable Harvest is to share it with others, human and non. The earth has shared generously with us, so we have to model that behavior in return. And a culture of sharing we know is a culture of resilience. Plant gatherers often leave a spiritual gift behind, but it can also be a material gift, weeding, caretaking, spreading seeds, helping those plants to flourish. We give songs, we give ceremony, we give our respect, we give fertilizer. Every breath that you take is a breath that was made for you by plants on the water that you drink, whether you're in an urban setting, whether you're on a remote mountaintop, we still are recipients of those gifts. And if we take the time to be grateful, that brings us into that state of humility, of understanding that we are not at the top of a biological hierarchy, that in fact we are the younger brothers of creation. all of us at Frog. We've been sitting with these concepts and moving with them a lot. It's kind of one of our guiding compasses. So now we're going to explore a little deeper with some of the frogs on what reciprocity means to each of us, starting with Govinda. Forest reciprocity for me started with CFIP grants in the early 1990s, uh, California Forestry Improvement Program, looking at thinning out the forest to make them healthier. Uh, by the late 90s, it became quite evident that the material coming out of the forest by doing the thinning projects was almost more of a fire hazard than having it standing. So what to do with all of the material? And we started looking at ways to utilize the material and recognizing the superior quality of the strength of the wood. You can have a 60-year-old tree that's only 8 inches, 10 inches in diameter. The growth rings are really tight. The structural integrity is far superior than any kind of uh, milled log. And the fact that it's round adds a whole other dimension to it of structural strength. So with that, in my particular work with traditional indigenous people, it became quite apparent just to uh, utilize the stuff to make uh, earth lodges. 
we're looking at a way to interact with the forest that is grounded in a, a heartful approach that can incorporate not only humans, but also animal species and the environment in a real holistic way. And that's a big part of why we're advocating for rooting this work being done by the local communities, because we're the ones who care. We're the ones who, who have to live with the consequences of what is done. It also gives an avenue for people to interact with their forests again, to understand that we, we are a part of these landscapes. I mean, they provide the air that we breathe, they pull the rain, you know, and so as we begin to understand that, like, we have a part to play in re-establishing relationships and being a symbiotic part of this community. And some of that means that, you know, it's not so much this conservation method of, like, leave the forest alone and they will heal themselves. And it's not this extraction method of what's the most that I can take out of it, but it's finding this middle ground. How do I both give something and how do I take something in return so that we have a balance? Yeah, and that that taking may be absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, you thin out your carrots, you know, and you get a few big carrots and Mm -hmm. uh, eat the little ones in the way. You know, I think difficult to feel that one can contribute to saving the world sometimes or saving our little neck of the woods and I think that that can also be a pitfall. We need proactive folks to really make a change happen and it can be in small ways and large ways but the actions that we take need to be done in a gradual manner and respective of the pace at which nature moves. If a forest is severely overburdened, if we took out everything that we might want to take out at once, you can dry the forest out too much and have just as many negative consequences. And so being able to have these relationships so that we can go back every year or every couple of years and continuously take out a little bit more so that the forest has time to adjust. And with plenty of observation and also coming in a humble way, we are here to do work that can improve these forests for many years to come. Too often, I believe that we kind of feel that we, as humans, know what is right and what needs to happen right now. Well, we're living in a community and trees, you know, they live in a time scale that is much longer than our lives. So it is it is quite difficult for us to slow down and really listen and, and observe what is going on in the forests. And I think all of us need to take that into consideration when we're working in the forests and the lands around our properties and to really make an effort to observe the impact that we're having, to be conscious that change happens slowly and we're not going to go out and remedy all of the injustice and devastation of the past, but at least we can make steps to learn and to keep questioning as we are walking forward and being good stewards on the land. And looking at what can we do to actually make the forest healthier, uh, there are very few what I would call true forests in in the country. I've seen three, I think, in my life. One in Canada and one in Northern California and one in Kentucky, actually. To give some historical context, uh, 97% of California forests were clear-cut at some point. And so this combined with an illegalization of native practices that were tending the land for thousands of years here. We as a society uh, created a situation uh, where we are uh, locked into kind of a management uh, situation. You know, when we removed this healthy diversity of trees and multiple species, the forests 
kind of reset. And so what we're seeing today with these massive wildfires is direct response to those actions we took 100 years ago and and more. So the um, solution may be to really examine that eradication and look at ways that we can bring back some of these practices, including prescribed fire and uh, reestablishing a healthy, multi-aged forest that can be appreciated by future generations. And the animals. And the animals. <laughs> and the whole, the whole community. The idea is that the traditional indigenous values can bring back a whole necessary understanding of how we can, as human beings, interact with the forest and the idea of reciprocity is what can we do that actually benefits the forest and actually adds to our our needs. Housing, for one, and then also the animals and the plants and how all of that diversity springs together and works in a synergistic uh, way. And to really begin to remember again what it means to tend a forest. It's not a practice that's going to come back overnight. We can learn a lot from what's been done before. Um, how the indigenous have caretake and grew these forests into what they were when colonizers showed up. But we also have to understand that the climate is changing and the ways we're using the forests are changing. And so how do we how do we have practices that are rooted um, in how these forests grew but are reflecting about where we are now? And that's an ongoing conversation and it's something that I think we all have to develop together, which is part of why, you know, we want to have groups of people doing this work together so we can all learn and influence each other in these processes. It's kind of neat because it's a, a living conversation. And I think that's one of the things as you bring up is that, that it's not a stagnant, s- sterile kind of one modality fits all. Yep. It's not a prescription. Or it, each one has to be mm-hmm. unique in its yeah. own application. Mm-hmm. I'd like to appreciate the work that indigenous folks, many scientists, and people of all walks of life have contributed to this understanding of nature that is constantly evolving. And we need to be humble in the face of uh, great changes that are happening, and also proactive. Well, I, you know, I like the uh, the CFIP, the California Forestry Improvement Program, because it did set up a set of guidelines about percentages that you wanted to withdraw and how to deal with it so you don't create more of a problem than already existed. And so, you know, there is some good work that was done, but the whole application of that was so they could rape, pillage, and plunder bigger trees. So, One of the challenges when we talk about forest tending and management is language. When we say forest thinning, and we're talking, you know, in our minds about the small trees, 12 inches or less, mostly less in diameter, is very different than when I've heard other organizations like Cal Fire or um, the Mendocino Redwood Company or the big industries kind of use those words. And, and they say they're doing forest health work and they say they're doing shaded fuel breaks. But when you look at what they do, they're mostly just doing what they've always done, which is take out the big trees and leave the little trees. And I think that so many of us who care about our forests is so obvious to us that we need to leave the big trees and thin the small ones out. It's the opposite. They're still doing the opposite of that. The fire danger gets worse because the small diameter trees are still there and the big trees go away. 
And we just really got to reverse that, reverse that style of logging. We could recreate logging in Northern California because there's so many of the small diameter poles that need to come out. And that's um, what we keep talking about. A 12-inch diameter tree is a pretty massive piece in its own right, but the human scale of actually working with trees of that size and smaller is very doable. And and like Jen was just saying, leave the big trees out there. And I think it's worth bringing up that a, a lot of the justification for taking out the big trees is that they say this is how we're going to fund these projects. And so part of the incentive here was that if we can shift the market and see that actually these materials that they're treating as waste are super valuable, we can use that to fund these projects and leave the big trees where they are, as well as revitalizing some of the local economy here. And carbon sequestration, you know, I mean, that's another part with our whole climate catastrophe. A large tree does a massive amount more work. We need to figure out a better way to live with ourselves and with the natural world. So that's going to leave us with a where-do-we-go-from-here concept and uh, what is quality of life uh, and how much of all this stuff do we actually need. We lived once in an ideal kingdom. It wasn't ever really ideal, but like we said about everything else, trees are dying. People are dying. It's unbelievably lonely, but wait a minute. a song called Palimpstar by Javier Hernandez Miares. Since you are listening to this, we know that you are a devotee of public radio. We also know that there is more competition than ever in history for your limited time. With all of the powerhouse stations in New York, Chicago, and L.A. putting out well-funded new podcasts every day, it is literally impossible to listen to even 1% of the shows about the subjects that you love and care about. Considering this, we ask you to set aside some time for us, locally produced radio, with guests you may know, may even share coffee with in the morning, talking about issues and places that are a part of your everyday life. Think global. Listen local. At least some of the time. We appreciate it for sure. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front.
Sequoia, performed by Marky Chandler and Haley Moore. I'm Chad Swimmer, and today we have a special episode on forest reciprocity in the Cloud Forest Institute, guest hosted by Matilda Hernandez Miares. We've been meeting weekly on Zoom all through COVID, and we've been uh, putting our heads together to figure out how we can help the whole situation, been writing grants, we've gotten um, building collaborations with other organizations. We most recently felt like we've got to get out in the woods and get off of our computers. So we initiated these this frog hop idea where once a month we go to a frog member's homestead and get our hands dirty and work together to to build something or the first frog hop was at Eric's place and it was all about trimming more limbs and mulching them and helping move these wheelbarrow loads of mulch over his extensive Hugel Coulter installation and uh, that was a lot of work. I'll just add some of the work at Eric's was made possible by the Fire Safe Council and their large chipper that we were able to utilize. So there's opportunities for, for sharing of resources in the community. Eric and his wife Cindy, with the help of their friend and Hugel Cedar, Samuel Soulfire, have undertaken an extensive project, thinning some of the forest behind their house using the brush, limbs, and small trees to create both on contour swales within the forest, as well as a section of deeper hoogles that were actually dug into the ground to be a food forest. In true permaculture fashion, they are transforming the problem into the solution. Let's hear a little bit more from Eric about this process. The idea is when the thinning crews come in, they create a lot of wood waste. And a lot of that, you know, this is the reciprocity part, goes back into the forest right away. So that's part of our mission is to develop, you know, these on-contour beds that will return moisture into the forest. And you've been doing that a lot of of that on your property, haven't you? Right. So um, (laughs) do you want to talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, so what we do is we take the small diameter poles that we get from the thinning process and we um, leave some branches on so they roll, don't roll downhill. And then we make piles that are follow basically the contour lines of a, that you would see on a topo map. And we make these long piles that follow the hill. And then the, we fill the gaps in as we go with chips. 
And so that blocks the air from getting into the pile so that it doesn't burn so easily. It might smolder in a, in a fire. But if you're doing a, like a controlled burn or something like that, you can put a fire break right before the, the contour bed so that it doesn't burn. Um, and so that captures moisture basically as the runoff is coming down the hill of, of, from a rainstorm. Um, the, uh, the contour beds block the moisture from, or absorb moisture as it's coming down the hill and um, hold it for a longer period to keep a little more moisture in, in the forest landscape. So we're adding basically piles of litter strategically along the landscape. Just a, it's a good thing for, for the forest health. And when we put the chips in, a lot of times um, it's the mycelium, mycelium has already started in the wood chips. And so it, it, it's, our, it's inoculating the piles and building up uh, the forest soil too. <laughs> if you'd like more information on this process, check out Samuel Soulfire's website, FullCircleGardenSolutions.com, where you can find his ebook and other information. Now let's pop back to the frog pond and hear about what we did in October. And then why don't you tell us what happened at the uh, frog hop at your place, Bodie? When everyone came out to my place, we wanted to build a structure and uh, really um, show that as a group, there was about 15 of us, and over two days, uh, I had laid the, the foundation and taken some poles out of the forest and had things ready and we were able to actually all work on learning how to do the joinery work and um, shoulder braces. We, we assembled a fairly sizable woodshed and uh, we were just so pleased to have completed such a structure in such a short amount of time. If you were to quantify the number of hours 15 people contributed, it, it really amounted to a, a momentous task that we were able to accomplish. So that was uh, really inspiring. Uh. Yeah, bringing back the barn raising and when everybody came out to my place, it was the 50th anniversary of uh, Greenfield oh, yeah. at that weekend. So it was a fun party at the end of the mm -hmm. event. And it's certainly neat to have everybody uh, learning to work together and, and actually being together, especially with all the COVID stuff and, and all that happening. And so the frog hops, because everyone is out there doing something in their own backyard and we can just hop around and help you do what you need done. Or you can help us do what we need done. Strengthening community ties and remembering that, yeah, we can help each other. And if you didn't get it yet, Forest Reciprocity Group, F-R-G, <laughs> is short for frog, and that's why they're called frog hops. And, uh, so we've got a lot of new, uh, fresh energy with Bodie and Matilda and the consistent, dedicated energy of our past board members. And now we have a newsletter that's coming out quarterly. Some of you probably saw the December newsletter. We'll be putting one out in March. And we're going to describe uh, our membership program there that will uh, tell you how you can come to Frog Hops. The other big endeavor that Bodie and Matilda have been spending a lot of time on is 
resource sharing database. The idea is going to be based kind of on a, a timeshare banking model, but departing from that a little bit into building a, a social network here that can enable people that have skills in working in the forest to share and find work as well. We're really all about developing a local workforce here in Mendocino that can manage our, our own forests and hopefully work more inside the communities trying to develop a way that we can all let each other know about the equipment we might have or the skills and how can we start kind of networking within ourselves to get some of the work done. I know a lot of people have had a hard time being able to find arborists and other kind of forest work workers right now, um, but a lot of those skills exist within our community. And especially with the drying up of some of the agricultural businesses in Mendocino, we're, we're looking to sort of reinvent ourselves. And I think that the forests have been overlooked for many years. We've seen a uh, several generations of extractive industries here, and that I think there's a, a great desire to reinvent ourselves yet again, and hopefully with a, with a greater ecological consciousness. So instead of this model that PG&E has been promoting where they're bringing in uh, forest service workers from other states and that don't have a lot of local appreciation for the forests, that there should be um, a local workforce that can accomplish this. Or who, which one of your neighbors has a Lucas mill, you know, a mobile mill so that when pg e comes and cuts down 20 redwoods and leaves them in your front yard, somebody can come and mill them up. And inspired by some of the other projects that have happened in the county, like the Grassroots Institute did a program a couple of years ago to map all the local nonprofits and worker-owned businesses. There's a group up in Leggett, the Northern Mendocino Eco-Restoration Alliance, that has been trying to do similar work, so we're trying to collaborate with them and see how we collect everyone's information in a way that allows us to see where we're all at and talk with each other. Eric of Polecraft Solutions came up with the idea for a skill-sharing database out of his need to find portable milling services and round timber around the county. Inside the Frog Resource Exchange, members will be able to share services by posting requests or offers to categories related to forest health work. Frog envisions this movement growing into an ad hoc network of neighbors helping neighbors share equipment, knowledge, and resources about forest tending. Yeah, we can all go out and have uh, fun. <laughs> Actually uh, working in the woods and bringing back old ways into a new world and, and recognize uh, a lot of uh, traditional indigenous values in architecture. So Ed, another part of this um, database will also be a way to gain access to round poles. And also on the other end, if you're a landowner that has an excess and need help, ways that we might be able to facilitate some trading and also skill sharing so that people who are interested in learning how to make furniture or build these structures have pathways to gain those skills and then access to the materials so that they can do it at home if they don't have access. Oh, I just wanted to make a shout out to anyone out there in the county, uh, educators, uh, people that work in the forest, you know, people, uh, craftsmen, carpenters, anyone that's interested in uh, working with us at the Forest Reciprocity Group. We really want to hear from you and, and we're, we're looking to, to build more partnerships and, and build more uh, alliances. So please contact us. 
So this is Forest Reciprocity Group. For more information, you can check out www.forestreciprocity.org. Uh, we envision healthy forest and healthy communities supporting each other. And if we take care of the forest, the forest will take care of us. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. I was a child of the commons, no one owned the land. Where the medicine grew, where I came to understand. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. In the garden, the majesty grew. Here in the garden, sacred stories are true. Still, while the sunlight shines upon my days, here before the mystery, I bow, I pray for grace. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. One part corn, three parts water, say a little prayer, give thanks to the mother. Diane Patterson, one part corn. Frog's first projects was to partner with Eric and Colin of Polecraft Solution to create an engineered approved timber frame design to streamline some of the permitting process. Eric is a draftsman and we supported the Polecraft Solutions work with an engineer to get one salt box design cabin fully engineered and how um, that's a quest to get their method for building homes streamlined so that it can become affordable. And not only affordable is to get the building uh, planning department online with actually utilizing small diameter poles so that if the engineering done, the permitting process to simplify uh, the whole workflow of actually getting uh, your project online, utilizing places like Montana, other uh, states that are already using big diameter poles uh, to build a lot of structures and houses out there. And so how can we get California's in line? 
here's a little bit more from the designer, Eric, about the salt box. The salt box design that we have is a basic braced timber frame design that we have pre-engineered. And we use that as a springboard for a final design for somebody, or we can actually build that salt box if somebody wants that. It's a salt box cabin. A lot of people want a bigger building, but some people just want a cabin. Which is great too. <laughs> what are the dimensions and stuff? Uh, the the main frame is sixteen by twenty four, and then there's a pop out that's typical for salt boxes, which is comes out another eight feet in the salt box the design. Has a long roof and then a, sh- and a short roof on the other side, so it's the long roof goes down to eight feet, and then the short roof stays at around twelve feet. At the end, at the end of the gable, <laughs> I'm trying to th- not talk uh, builder speak. But. Yeah, I know it's a little <laughs> difficult. <laughs> For those who don't know, a gable is the point between where two intersecting roofs meet, so it'll be on kind of the flat wall side. Where does the term salt box come from? Um, if people used to get their salt delivered to their houses, like mm. milk. Like they used to get mm. the milk deliveries mm-hmm. and the salt boxes were that sort of shape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like a mailbox, but a salt box. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering about that personally for a while. <laughs> there used to be lots of different deliveries. You know, people would just do the rounds. So this cabin style is from New England? Especially on, the, on Cape Cod. You see rows and rows of them. Usually the, the, usually the long slope is to the front, which you might think not think of. Well, typically we put the, the entry on the gable end, but in, on Cape Cod, the entry is on the low end of the slope. <laughs> I think they had the forest in the back and they went the long end on the front because of wind, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't tend to have a lot of overhangs in Cape Cod because the wind will pick them up and blow away, blow away the roofs. <laughs> 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 you know, it's, it's all clapboard walls and not what we build. We, we build with long overhangs to try to keep the plaster dry and then hopefully keep the plaster off the ground as well, protecting it with foundation or a shield or something like that. You kind of touched this a little bit. Maybe you can expand a little bit about oh, why you think more builders should incorporate round poles into their building designs. The round pole timber frame, the brace frames are, are very stable in an earthquake mm-hmm. because you're not re- relying on the sheer strength of the nails, you're relying on bracing instead. So the bracing keeps the building from racking. One of the benefits of the round poles is that usually when you mill a log into a square beam or whatnot, you're severing the grain. So the round poles are unsevered grain, so they end up to be stronger. And also that you get a nice smooth surface on the outside of the pole, which is easier to keep insects out of. It doesn't burn as easily. Um, it has got a nice feel to it. And it works well with natural materials, you know, with a natural building aesthetic. There's lots of different infill materials you can use with round pole timber frame. You can use straw bale, which is very insulative, or you can do cob, which is not as insulative, or you can do light straw techniques, which are sort of in between. <laughs> we're, we're exploring hempcrete. Um, 
There's different ways to apply these different materials, and we can do different types of plaster. Um, it's usually hand-applied plaster. We don't usually use drywall or anything like that. You can also use uh, SIP panels with our, with our frames, too. With the Forest Reciprocity Group, hopefully we'll get a place to store the poles and so we can get them graded. There's a couple different ways to get round poles graded, and that'll create a way to build the houses to code <laughs> more easily. And also I'm working on a techniques to make the round pole timber frame joinery more streamlined. <laughs> That's awesome. If you'd like to find out more. Our website is um, polecraftsolutions.com. Mm-hmm. You can see lots of pictures on the website of our different projects. We put together the whole kit before we take it to the site so we can transport it to... It doesn't have to be just our local area. We've done a project in Palo Alto and we've done other projects that are farther away. And we also do the infill materials for people as well. My um, business partner, Collins, very good at plaster mixes. <laughs> earthen plaster and lime plaster and he does earthen flooring like stabilized with linseed oil it's a really nice soft floor it's a dark color but <laughs> it's, it's nice to walk on it's not like portland cement it's, it's got a warm feel to it And I'm glad to say other groups in the county are starting to do the same work. We'd like to make a shout out to the Tribal Eco-Restoration Alliance. TribalEcoRestoration.org Who is uh, promoting cultural fire and prescribed burning as a way to uh, revitalize our, our forest's health and also uh, reconnect to indigenous traditional practices. TribalEcoRestoration.org we have Numera, that's the Northern Mendocino Ecosystem Recovery Alliance. NM-ERA.org. And they are working up in the Leggett area and around 10 Mile Creek to train a local workforce to administer a, a large grant that they received. NM-ERA.org. Then we have uh, the Eel River Recovery Project. EelRiverRecovery.org. Pioneered by Pat Higgins and many others that is looking at watershed recovery along the Eel River and revitalization of salmon habitat. EelRiverRecovery.org. And again, you've been listening to the Forest Reciprocity Group. ForestReciprocity.org. Please join our mailing list and we'll send you our newsletter and um, we can start building things together. Come to some of the frog hops coming up soon. ForestReciprocity.org.
And just in case you're wondering about your frog call identification, you have been listening to some California red-legged frogs croaking and some Pacific chorus frogs chirping and some red-winged blackbirds, not frogs. This episode featured music from the Raging Grannies of Mendocino, poetry by Jim Dine, music composed by Javier hernandez Miares, chiseling sounds from building a round pole woodshed, and a chorus of frogs recorded by our friend Abe. Thanks for listening. I am Chad Swimmer, and I would love to thank Matilda Hernandez Miares, her partner Buddy Harnish, and also all the people of the Forest Reciprocity Group for sharing their wisdom with us here on Disquiet on the Western Front. I would like to thank KZYXNZ, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond for support and the existence of this show. Also, KMUD, Humboldt County, KCXU, San Jose, for taking this show on and forwarding it to a little tiny piece of the rest of the world. As always, the views and opinions expressed are those only of myself and my guests, not of the staff or management of anybody who might air this show. If you have comments or suggestions, you can email those to cswimmr at gmail.com. And if you would like to listen to back editions of this show or others that I've produced, go to disquietmedia.blue. Nearly 40 episodes are archived there. I would also like to extend my appreciation to George Russell, who's playing guitar in the background here. And to remind us all that in the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, we all live downstream. Everything we do matters. This show is produced on Audacity, open source software, in a small studio by an even smaller staff in the forest of the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California, 